Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church. Um, I'm Steve. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, I, just before we jump into the sermon this morning, I, I really want to encourage you, um, the opportunity that Michelle made mention of for feeding the college students, especially the sports teams, I'd really encourage you to consider being a part of that. And it, I don't know, if, if you guys look back, for those of you who maybe are college students, it's current, but if you look back at your time in college and think about how important uh, a meal is, just, especially for sports teams, where they're burning tons and tons of calories, this is a huge opportunity for us to build relationships with some of the students over at ICC. Um, some that are new to the area might be coming in from out of town. Those, those who just would feel out of place. And it's a way for us to welcome them into the community and know that God loves them in the middle of it too. So consider being a part of that. So this morning, we will be continuing on um, in the book of Mark. Now, if you were with us last week, or, or you've been following along with us online, uh, we looked at Jesus coming into the temple in Jerusalem and driving out the money changers and the animal sacrifice sellers in Mark 11, 6 through 19. Now, if you open up your Bibles to Mark 11, or uh, if you look up on the screen, uh, Here's where last week's chapter or section was in the book of Mark. <laughs> All right. All right, it'll be up in a second here. All right. So, it, just to give you a picture, it's kind of sandwiched right in the right in the middle of Mark chapter 11. So, this morning's text actually goes um, it is going to surround, it's going to go both in front of and behind the passage that we looked at last week. Now, if we were to give a little bit of a visual representation to this, it might look a little bit like a sandwich. All right. So in Mark's account, uh, Mark's gospel account, this happens from time to time. And in fact, Bible scholars even have this incredibly highly technical term for it. Um, anybody want to take a guess what that might be? All right, it, it's called a Mark sandwich. It's it's really straightforward. Like, yes, you know, highly technical. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, so here's the deal. When one passage is sandwiched between two others, like we have here this morning in Mark chapter 11, it's a signal for us that both passages are related to each other. And each one helps us understand what's going on in the other text. So because of this, before we can really dig into what's happening in this morning's text, we need to actually go back and do a quick review of the text and some of the key points from Pastor Ken's sermon last week. So this is just going to be a quick snapshot um, some of the key things for t this morning. Uh, if you missed last week's sermon, I would encourage you to check it out online on our website because it'll give you an even fuller picture than we're able to go into this morning. So here's uh, two of the key points that will help us as we look at our passage this morning. The first is that God despises the selling of religion for a prophet. So when Jesus came into the temple, a system had been established between the religious leaders and the vendors where they were taking advantage of the people who were coming into the temple to worship. So as people would come into the temple, there was a temple tax, 
And right up, they had to pay it with the right kind of money. So because of this, the money changers had actually set up, as they were, would exchange the money, there was an exchange fee that was charged on top of the currency exchange to get to the right currency for the temple. Same thing is happening with some of the animal sacrifices. Worshippers would come into the temple, and they would need to bring with them a perfect sacrifice, a, a, a spotless animal, to be, wor- to be offered to God, it kind of as, as a recognition of our sins and payment for that. Now, if they did not bring one with, or the priest, who would be, in, who would be the one who would inspect the sacrifice, if the priest turned them down, he would point them to the vendors that are in the outer court who, would, who were selling pre-approved sacrifices. But here's the deal. It, you can almost think of it, you know, when we go to like a Twins game, there's, you can have a hot dog outside of the game and it's like a dollar. You go inside, it's like six. That's kind of what's happening here. They were selling the animal sacrifices at a much, much larger rate. So even on top of this, and this is key for, what, uh, for this morning as well, all of this was happening in the space where the people who were not Jewish, in other words, who did not have, um, didn't have that background, were able to, co- so all of the people were able to come in and worship and pray to God. So in other words, not only was this impacting the, people, the Jewish people's understanding of what's happening in the temple, but it's also preventing Gentiles, people like us, from being able to worship, which was the very purpose of having the incredibly large outer court of the temple. The second key point from last week was that Jesus was replacing the physical temple with himself. Now, as we looked at the account of Jesus cleansing the temple in John 2, Jesus made a statement to the religious leaders that said this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So John later goes on to say that Jesus is referring to his own body, and that after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered it. It it clicked in. So in other words, the primary place of worship and prayer was no longer going to be in a building, but it was in a direct relationship through Jesus. So we also looked at 1 Corinthians 6.13, and we saw that we too have become God's temple, and his spirit lives in us. So all these things have a huge effect on prayer, on worship, and on a relationship with God. And it's this that's at the very heart of this morning's passage. So, as we come to our passage this morning, I have to admit, this is one of those passages that when we come to it, we read it, and we kind of go like, what in the world is going on here? Uh, Why in the world did Jesus curse a fig tree? And what does this show us about Jesus? So this morning, we're going to look at the text, and we're going to start just by walking through and looking at some of those questions. So we're going to start, we're going to be in Mark 11, and we're going to start at verse 12. So, on the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. So this is referring to Jesus. So Jesus, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. 
And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay. So our passage starts out with Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the day. As he's walking along, his stomach starts to rumble. And so he decides to check out a fig tree that he sees along the road to grab a quick snack. However, as he gets closer, he sees that though the tree has tons of leaves on it, there's nothing to eat. Okay, here's where the text starts to get a little strange. At the end of verse 13, we read, He came to it, and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Okay? If that weren't enough, the next verse shows us that Jesus, it shows us Jesus making a strange act towards the tree. In other words, telling it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again, because he found no figs on it. So if we put those two things together, those two verses together, it quickly sounds like Jesus is expecting to find full-grown, ripe figs on a tree when they were out of season. And his statement to the tree seems pretty unreasonable, or, or maybe even a little selfish. So, okay, what's, what in the world is going on? Okay, so here's the deal. When Mark wrote this gospel... He was writing it in a culture that understood all about fig trees. In fact, it was one of the most important trees in the land of Israel, fruit trees. However, it's pretty safe to say that most of us, uh, as we're you know, living here in northern Minnesota, in pretty much the opposite of a desert climate, that we don't have a lot of fig trees around to figure out and know what's going on. So, all right. It makes it really hard for us to understand what Jesus is expecting as he's approaching the fig tree and why he responds like he does. All right. Weird that you're going to get a a fig tree lesson this morning, but here we go. All right. So the crazy thing about fig trees is fig trees produce figs, their fruit, in a different order than we expect from our trees out here. When we look at our trees, we expect that leaves would come first, then you'd have fruit buds, and eventually you'd have full-grown fruit. However, the normal pattern for fig trees is they actually produce their fruit buds first. Then they produce leaves, and then later on they produce ripe figs. So just to give us a little picture of this, I have a picture up on the screen. So if we look off on the left side... The fig fig buds, before leaves come up, happen in March. In the middle, the buds and leaves happen together in April. And then full-on ripe fruit happens in May and June. Now, if you look at those kind of those buds up there, you can see that they're pretty much just smaller versions of the ripe figs. And and the reality is is that these could and were eaten as kind of a a quick snack, even before they became ripe. These are the types of figs that Jesus is looking for. And here's how we know this. First, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Passover, which every year happens in March or April. Second, and this helps us understand Mark's statement, is 
that fig season isn't until May or June. So when Jesus is coming in, he's looking for these fig buds that would be a little harder to see, a little farther off. So, so let's put all of this together. As Jesus is coming towards this fig tree, the tree holds promise. There's leaves, so there should be buds. But not yet ripe fruit. However, when, when Jesus arrives and begins searching, all he sees is leaves. This promising tree has proved to be empty. And the reality for the tree is, it's not going to have any fruit on it at all that year, because there aren't any buds. So in a symbolic act that's deeply connected with Jesus entering into the temple and cleansing it, Jesus turns to the fig tree and declares, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now remember, what happens immediately after this is Jesus walks into the temple and he begins examining the spiritual condition of what's happening within the courts. So Jesus, in this very moment, is setting the stage for his disciples, as well as for us, to look at and understand the bigger picture of what's happening inside the temple, and also to prepare them for how things are going to change after Jesus' death and resurrection. So, all right, here's our first point for this morning. And if you're following along with notes, I know they're not written in there, but we've got them up here. All right, it is possible to do the stuff of God, but to miss a life-changing relationship with him. See, Jesus enters into the, as he enters into the temple, he encounters many people who are busy with the activities of the temple. They're making sure that everyone has the right type of currency for offerings. They're making sure that people have the right kind of sacrifices since the ultimate sacrifice for our sins hasn't taken place yet, which is going to be Jesus' death on the cross. And and all this stuff is happening inside the very temple itself. So the people were about doing the stuff of God. And much like the promise of leaves on a fig tree, it appears like there's promise in the activity that's going on inside the temple. There's a lot of God's stuff happening. But as Jesus walks into the temple, he pointedly confronts a serious problem. There aren't any fig buds. And the true purpose of the temple is being distorted. See, the temple was a place where all people were to be able to come and meet with God, to talk with him and worship. It was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. So here's, here's a picture of this, this problem, and we actually can look at this even all the way back in Jeremiah. Here's what he says to the religious leaders who have been selling religion for a profit back in his days. So this is Jeremiah 8, 10 through 13, last part of, starting in the last part of 10. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed the abomination? No, but they were were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They uh, They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, and this is key, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine, 
nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves wither, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So here's the deal. God is longing to gather the figs. He's longing to gather those people who are loving him. Yet, even as he comes in, to draw them into this relationship with him, all he sees is leaves and no buds. He sees the temple as a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer. So as they're doing the God stuff, they miss the life-changing relationship with Jesus, God who was standing right in front of them. And in the process, not only did they miss it, but it was affecting the Gentiles as well. Now, now here's the reality. The same thing can happen with us. We can love people. We can love reading and studying God's word. We can love worship music. We can love serving. And we can, in the middle of it, we can miss loving Jesus. This reality struck me pretty hard when I was in seminary. So during one of my Old Testament studies classes, we were asked to read a whole bunch of different commentaries. All of them were good and all of them useful. But one of them jumped out at me because it had this especially amazing reverence, love, and respect for God's word. And I wasn't the only one of my classmates to notice this. Yet there was something strange stirring in the background. There weren't any connections being made with a relationship with Jesus. Then, one day as we were discussing what we were reading and seeing in class, our professor made a comment that that, actual, that commentary writer wasn't a follower of Jesus. Now see, while we've been seeing this evidence all along, it still came as a shock to us. Because of the commentators, uh, the writers, love for God's word was so incredibly great. He loved God's word, but he missed Jesus. The same thing can happen with us. We can love going to church, love going to youth group, love serving our neighbors. We can love the God's stuff, yet we can miss out on the relationship with the one who makes all of those things worthwhile and fruitful. We can miss out on that relationship with Jesus. For the Pharisees, they loved their position as religious leaders. But when Jesus came and called them on it, instead of letting God change them, they turned away and sought to destroy him. So here's a question for all of us. Are we letting a love of good things, even God's stuff, are we letting that define our relationship with Jesus? Or are we letting a loving relationship with Jesus define absolutely everything else? And here, here's why this can be a danger. This can affect others too. As they look at us, are they seeing a relationship where we're desperately in love with Jesus? Or are we desperately in love with God's stuff? But see, Jesus doesn't want us to be caught up in loving the stuff of God first. He wants us to be caught up in loving him first and having a life-changing relationship with him. See, here's what, G what God says, even right before he addressed 
the, the people in Jeremiah, we go back from Jeremiah 8 to 7, and this is what God says in Jeremiah 7. And this is starting in 22 through 24. He says, and this is, this is talking to his people. In that day that I brought them out of, out of the land of Egypt, so talking to the Israelites, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Now to put this in perspective, if you're to open up your Bible, the very first time that God talks about creating a temple and people offering sacrifices is in the middle of the second book of the Bible. Which means the very first book and a half is always, always, always about a relationship with him. And in fact, the temple is just another way to show that relationship. It's a deepening of it, pointing to something greater, pointing to Jesus. So all along, the entire purpose of the temple building was to be a place where people could enter into a relationship with God. The end goal was always the relationship. So here Jesus comes, and things are going to change. Very soon that temple building is going to go away, and he replaces it with a relationship through Jesus. This also means that the physical temple, that fig tree, is going away. All right, so let's jump back to our text this morning, and we'll pick it up again, starting in verse 20. Now, to give you a little context, we jumped over, again, we jumped over that temple passage, which means this is the following day. So, the following day, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, said to him, Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said, answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, Forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you and your trespasses. All right, so, quick snapshot again. Before Jesus had come into the temple, he found the fig tree that promised fruit, but he found it empty and cursed it. So, as we just saw, this is a symbolic act that was directly related with what's going on with inside the temple. And Jesus gave his disciples the physical image of the fig tree to understand it. But the fig tree also looks to something else. It's helping prepare his disciples for him replacing the temple with himself. So here's what happens as Jesus comes in the following morning. There Jesus and his disciples are. They're walking into town. And as they're walking by, they see the fig tree that Jesus had cursed yesterday. And Peter speaks up. Gotta love Peter. Hey, Jesus, 
Check it out! That fig tree you cursed? Man, it's totally dead! But then Jesus does something a little strange. He turns to them and does something unexpected. He starts talking about what a relationship with God looks like through prayer. It's almost like he just completely ignored Peter and that thoroughly dead tree and just moves on to another topic entirely. Okay, what's going on? So here's, here's as I was I'm praying through this, I'm like, God, what is going on? I kind of had an aha moment. Jesus, it's, even in the middle of that, as he's in the temple courts, he's focusing on that prayer relationship, that place for prayer. So Jesus turns and starts talking about prayer. See, the temple all along was a house of prayer for all nations. But with it gone, how are the people going to worship God? In fact, this is the very question that the Jews had to wrestle with when the temple was destroyed a couple years later in 70 AD. However, for Jesus' disciples, they would already have an answer. See, when Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, he opened the way for us to have a relationship with God through him, and he became the temple. Which means that we have access to God through relationship with him, and no longer within that temple context, the temple building. So as followers of Jesus, prayer and worship can happen anytime, anywhere, through a relationship with him. And this would have been a source of real hope for, the, for his, Jesus' disciples, and not just the 12 who have a Jewish background, but for all of Jesus' disciples. See, for those who did not have a Jewish background, instead of being limited to the outer courts of the temple, which is basically a marketplace at this point, instead of being there for worship, they now have direct access to God. And in the middle of all of it, it was a blessing to all peoples. And more than that, in the midst of all of it, it reminds us all that the true purpose, of the true purpose of worship and prayer i put it this way for your notes. Prayer and worship has always been about a relationship with God. In other words, they're not an end in and of themselves, but they're a part of a growing relationship with God. Say, for instance, that you were going to go on a trip to California. It's summer. You want to check it out? Awesome. You could get, get to California in any number of ways. You could play, take a, a plane... You could take a train, you could take a car, bus, and even if you really wanted a long road trip, you could take a bike. Say you chose to go take a plane. The purpose of your trip is not to get to the airport. The purpose of your trip is to get to California. The airport is the way you get there. In the same way, the purpose of a relationship with God is not for the sake of worship and prayer themselves. We are to use worship and prayer to help us grow in our relationship with God, where we remember his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, and we can place our trust in him. And as we love him in return, we remember and live like kids loving an amazingly loving father. 
So even as Peter and the other disciples are still caught up in the amazement of the fig tree, Jesus is answering questions before they even know that they're going to come. He brings them right back to the very heart of the temple and brings us right back to the heart of a relationship with God. Goes back to what is prayer and worship about? And he reminds them of what a relationship with God looks like. So Jesus turns to his disciples and responds to them in verse 22, saying, have faith in God. And he goes to give them three different examples of what faith in God means, what it looks like. Here's the first one. Faith in God means that we trust him to do the impossible. Verse 23 says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, now here's the deal. When we read this passage by itself, it sounds an awful lot like something Yoda from Star Wars might say. You can, you can move this rock, this mountain, and you can make it do whatever you want, float in the air, whatever, do, do backflips. All you have to do is just believe enough and not doubt. Or in his words, do or do not, there is no try. And the assumption is that it will happen. But here's the difference between what Jesus is saying and what Yoda might say. While in both instances, something might happen that seems impossible, the difference is about who you are putting your faith in. On the one side, the focus is on ourselves. If we just believe enough, then we can make anything happen. You can, we can make a mountain move. It's all a matter of how strong our faith is. So if we can't do impossible things, then it's really just because we don't have a strong enough faith. But, but here's the problem. This, the, this kind of faith really has nothing to do with God and everything to do with ourselves. It's a Star Wars picture of faith. Jesus, on the other hand, with Jesus, on the other hand, faith has, not, has little to do with ourselves and everything to do with God. See, the truth is, in our power, we cannot do the impossible. Yet God can. He is the one who can and will do the impossible. This is why Jesus reminds his disciples, have faith in God. Whatever happens is because our Heavenly Father is at work making the impossible possible. And because of this, we can put our hope and our trust in him and not doubt that he can bring us through whatever happens, even the worst of circumstances, because they're not beyond his capability to handle. Now here's the hard parts. Just because God has the capability to handle every situation, big or small, possible or impossible, it doesn't always mean that he will handle them the way that we want him to. It doesn't mean that we'll have an easy life. Yet, sometimes that's our desire. So when we encounter difficult situations, and we, we do truly believe that God has the ability to do the impossible, a different kind of doubt starts rising up in our hearts and minds. Instead of God, doubting God's capability to handle a situation, we start to doubt God's character. See, faith in God also means that we trust in his love to give us the right thing, 
disciples. Jesus, right after calling his disciples to have faith in God, to do the impossible thing, says this in verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. Okay, again, now here I have some good news and some bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is, is that verse, this verse is pointing directly to the goodness of God and his overflowing generosity to us, especially shown through Jesus. See, Jesus is calling us to remember the character of his Father and know that we can and should freely ask him to take care of our needs. We should be coming to God with all kinds of prayer requests every time, over and over. And then here's, here's another passage on prayer to give us this picture. Luke 11, 9 through 13. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, instead of a fish will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, not only is our Heavenly Father a good gift giver, he is the best gift giver. And the ultimate example that we have is him giving his son for us, Jesus, so that we might be able to enter into that loving relationship with him. So because of his amazing love shown towards us time and time again, we can trust him to also give us exactly what we need. Now here's the bad news. When we read this verse, often we hear this. You can ask whatever you want. All you have to do is ask, and, and you'll get it. But sometimes we forget that what we ask for is not always what we need or what's good for us. Now, often we can take this to mean that God doesn't really love us and, and he can't be trusted. But in reality, it's just the opposite. So picture it like this. A parent knows that their kid has an allergy to peanuts. Kid comes up to the parent asks for peanut butter. The parents, in their love, is not going to give their kid peanut butter because they love them, and they know it's going to do harm. See, God also doesn't always give us what we might ask for because he knows what is truly best for us. And not just what's best for us, but will also become a blessing for others. This doesn't mean that we should give up coming to God in prayer because he doesn't answer the way we like. It doesn't mean that God do doesn't love us. What it does mean is that we have to trust in him that because of his abundant love, he will do what's best. And that we need to trust him in the middle of that, that he knows exactly what he's doing. And when we do this, when we turn to God and trust both his ability to handle every situation, and as we grow in our trust and love towards him, 
because of that abundant goodness shown towards us through Jesus, it leads to a life that's radically changed. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 11.25. So next verse. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Faith in God means that our lives reflect the love and forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. See, while verses 23 and 24 remind us of God's power and love and and how that affects our relationship with prayer, it also equips us and reminds us of God's goodness. It reminds us that we can ask God with confidence and boldness because of that goodness and love. But God wants others to know and experience that goodness as well. Much like the temple was supposed to be a place for all people to meet with God, a house of prayer for the nations, God calls us and uses us to spread his goodness to others. But to be honest, this isn't always easy. It means that sometimes, like Jesus calls in this passage, we're going to have to forgive people. Sometimes people that don't deserve it. It means we're going to have to love people that we may not like or be comfortable with. It means that even when there's hurt put into our lives by others, we forgive them and go to God in prayer to know how we can love them in the same way that he has loved us and ask him for the strength to do that. Now, again, this is hard. So how do we do this? How can we forgive others even when there's hurt and pain in our lives? We can because of who God is. At times it may seem impossible to forgive others, but here we have to remember that we can trust in God to do the impossible in us and others. Most of all, we can trust that God is and always will be a good father. And because we have that good, amazing Heavenly Father, we can ask him to help us forgive others, even though it may seem impossible, as we're talking with him in prayer. And here's why it's so important for us, and why God calls us to forgive. So, As it says, so that our Father in heaven may, also, may forgive us our trespasses. God wants us to remember who he is. He wants us to remember that we do not deserve the forgiveness he has given us. Yet, while we were still rebelling against him, running from him, hurting him, ourselves, and others, he sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to take on the consequences of our sin, and he died on the cross when we deserve to be there. See, we didn't deserve God's love. We could have done nothing to earn it. And yet, Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. And all of it was so that we might know our Heavenly Father's great love for us and that we might come into a love relationship with him in return. Yet when we're unwilling to forgive others, we forget not only that the forgiveness that we have received when we turn our lives over to Jesus, but we also forget what our Heavenly Father is like. And the more that we do that, it ends up hurting our relationship with God. We hold on to our pain and unforgiveness towards others 
And before long, we don't want to come to God in prayer because it means he may ask us to let go. Yet God wants so much more for us. And he wants us to use us for so much more in others' lives too. God wants our lives to reflect his love and forgiveness in every aspect of our lives, including our prayer relationship with him. Okay. Here's the cool part about this passage. Even while it seems like Jesus has dropped the symbolism of the fig tree, he actually didn't. He went on to describe the exact opposite of a fruitless tree by giving us a picture of what fruit looks like. The fruit of having a relationship with him, putting our faith in him, in that our lives would trust him to do the impossible that we trust in him and his loving kindness, and we share with others the very love and forgiveness our Heavenly Father has given us. This is something we can celebrate as we remember God's great and abundant goodness and love. You know, this morning is Communion Sunday. We celebrate this as we take communion. We remember Jesus' death in our place and the hope of the resurrection in that that we can enter into the relationship with him. So I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. Um, I would ask you, uh, so here at Grand Rapids Evangelical Free Church, we practice something called open communion, which means if you have entered into a loving relationship with Jesus, where he is your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to celebrate with us together. Um, We would ask that all of us, uh, if you're new here, we we take the bread and the drink together. So hold on to it until um, the time comes.